Okay, we're starting here on the top of Peyam and Aleph. The Gemara is continuing to discuss the Mishnah. The Mishnah said that for Dio, for ink, it's Kedeh Lechtov Shteotiot. The threshold amount for carrying is the amount of ink that you would require to write two letters. And we have a Breita in the Gemara that describes that ink can come in different forms. And in each of those different forms, the threshold amount is still Shteotiot, Jistana. Shteotiot Bidio, two letters in Dio, as Rashi says over here, Dio Yavish, which is the concentrated ink before it's liquefied. So you'd have to have that amount of ink that when it's liquefied, it could write two letters. That's the amount of ink that you'd be chayav for, for carrying out. Ooh, Shteotiot Bekumus. And the same is true when if you have ink inside of a quill, inside of a writing instrument, that amount of ink would be the amount of ink that is for Shteotiot. And Shteotiot Bekalmarin. And also two otiot in Kamarin. Rashi over here says that Kamarin is keset hasofer, which would be the inkwell of the sofer. Although in the modern Hebrew, Kalmar is a pencil case. And in the time of the Gemara, a Kalmar also was something in which you put the quill or the writing instrument. It was a sheath of sorts that also had an inkwell attached to it. So it was dual purpose. So it probably is referencing to that. But again, the amount of ink that you would need in there in order for you to be chayav is the amount of ink that it would require to write two letters. The Me'iri over here discusses the Yushalmi that says that each of these requirements is actually a different amount. And that is that you need more ink inside of the inkwell to write two letters than you do in terms of ink inside of the quill or the writing instrument. Because the writing instrument then takes out ink from the inkwell, but it needs a certain amount of ink in there in order for it to draw at least two letters worth. And the same is true with regards to the quill itself or the writing instrument itself. The amount of ink that would be needed there would be more than the ink for two letters because the quill has some of the ink that's in it remaining behind it doesn't come out it's not written with and therefore these would all be different sizes even though shteotiot is the threshold amount in all of them over here in the Bavli, the gemara never makes such a distinction and the meiri speculates that maybe the Bavli is arguing on that yushalmi and that the Bavli believes that it's shteotiot period doesn't matter where it's found rashi over here and the rabbeinu Hanano both make a comment that as to why aren't you chayav here forget about the ink for carrying out the writing instrument for carrying out the inkwell itself. Why aren't those problematic, irrespective of the ink? Even if you don't have enough ink in them, they should be chayab just because you're carrying these other items. So Rashi quotes the Gemara later on, the Rabbeinu Khananok says something similar, which is that you're not chayab on the kli because it's batel to the item inside. Primary item over here is the ink. The quill or the writing instrument is secondary to the ink. And therefore, even though that item is even bigger than the amount of ink, until you have the requisite threshold of ink that you carry out, you will not be chayav, even though the instrument that you're carrying it in is bigger, or also you are carrying out. It's similar to what the Gemara says later on, if you have less than a shior of food, less than a grogeret, in a kli, despite the fact that you have a big bowl that you're carrying out this food in, but if the food is less than shior, you're not going to be chayav, because the bowl is batel, to the food, which is the primary item. And so they both suggest that over here, the same thing is true with regards to the other instruments or items that are being carried with the ink. What happens if you have enough ink to write one letter that's in the quill or writing instrument, and you have one letter's worth of ink that is in the dry ink state? Or you have otachat bekumus and then otachat bekalmarin. You have one letter that's in the writing instrument and one that's in the inkwell. Mahu, what would be the din in that case? And the Gwarabi says a teku as an unresolved issue as to whether you can cross-pollinate between these different forms of the ink or different manifestations of the ink for two letters. And as Tabali Tosafo point out, that's even though the Gemara clearly believes that if you have two different quills or two different writing instruments, each one of them contains one letter's worth, that they would definitely be mitzareif. Over here, maybe the fact that they are manifest not just different instruments, but disparate instruments, Maybe that's enough to say that they cannot be mitzareit. Person carried out two letters worth of ink and then wrote them down while he's walking. The writing of the letters is classified as a hanacha. In order to be chayav for carrying, we noted this all the way in the beginning of the Masechta, that carrying is comprised of two component parts to it, as an akira, which is taking the item from where it is at rest, or where it's stationed now, to a hanacha, which is taken to the new location, to the place where you're going to put it down. In order to be chayav for carrying, you need to have both an akira and a hanacha. You have to take it from one place, 
and place it down in the other place. Every time you look at carrying, you have to look at where was the akira, where was the hanacha. So here the individual was carrying out the ink, so that is the akira that's taking place. He's removing it from whatever location it's in. But then he has to do a hanacha. If he continues to walk and continues to move, there is no hanacha. If he came to a stop, then his body would be the hanacha because just like his body has now come to rest, any object that's on his body or with him will also be classified as coming to rest. But in this instance, he continued to walk and did not come to rest. What Rabbi says is if you write those letters down while you're walking, that is considered to be the hanacha of the letters, even though you are still in motion, but the tiva, putting them onto an object, is the classification of Hanakha, and you'd be chayav be carrying in that case, because tivatan zuhi hanachatan. That is the normal Hanakha for ink, which is when it's written onto a surface. Vamarava, utsi otachat vikatva. If a person carries out ink that is sufficient to write one letter, and then he actually did write that letter, vikazarva utsi otachat, and they went back and carried out another one letter's worth of ink, and katva, and then wrote it down, patur. In that case, you are patur. We're not mitztaref. We do not join together the two single letters in order to make it that you carried out two letters worth of ink. My daima, because bidna, the afko, the batraita, at the time that you're taking out the second letter worth of ink, chasele lishiru adukamaita, then the original one has already lost its requisite threshold amount. That is that the threshold amount is ink that you can write a letter with. Once you've written the letter, the letter starts to dry and the ink is absorbed into whatever was the surface that you were writing on and some of the ink now disappears. That reduction in the quote-unquote size of the ink or amount of ink makes it now that you, you no longer have sufficient ink to write one letter. So by the time you bring out the second letter, the first letter's ink has been reduced to the point where you can't meet the threshold of two letters because the first letter is already smaller and then they have a new letter letter, which is only one letter, and therefore you have less than two letters, and you're not going to be chayav. Vamarava. The person carried out half of a dried fig's worth of food, and remember again, we've seen that grogeret is the standard or default shiur for food substances or carrying food substances on Shabbat. So if he takes out a chatzik grogeret, which is below the threshold amount, then he puts it down. And then he goes back in and takes out a half grogeret. And then he places it down. Mar here is referencing to a Mishnah later on and says that when you put down the first letter, it's the equivalent of it landing in the mouth of a dog or landing in the middle of a fire, which is that when you have Hanakha, when the item comes to rest, it has to come to rest because of your koach, because of your action or activity, and you have to make it that the thing comes to rest at a particular location. If something else intervenes to stop your action from allowing for there to be Hanakha, then you don't have the remainder of the Malakha done because you're missing the Hanakha, and you would not be chayat. So for instance, if it lands in the mouth of a dog, that dog then be captured it or stopped it from coming to rest from your trajectory that you had set the course for this item on. And therefore, you don't have a anacha over here because he intercepted it in his mouth. And similar with the fire that consumes it before it ever comes to rest, then that's also something where the koach of something else is intervening in your hanacha, and it's not classified as anacha. Rav is suggesting here that when you took the first chatzid grogeret out and put it down, when you come to bring the second Gogaret out, the first one now is classified as if it doesn't exist anymore. And the Gemara says, Vamai, why shouldn't it be there? It's one thing it lands in the mouth of a dog, or if it lands in a fire. But here you put it down. Ha mancho, you put it down and it's still there. If you pick up the first half Gogaret before you put down the second one, then Nasid since you took it away, already removed it from its original state of Hanacha, that undermines that Hanacha. Once that Hanacha is undermined, when you bring out the second Chatzig Rogeret, it cannot be added to the first one because the first one was already terminated, in a sense, before the second one came out. In order to be Chayav, you do need to do the complete Malacha under Helam Echad and one forgetting. And that complete Malacha must be extant at the same time. Over here, since you did it in component parts, the first component part needs to be intact when the second component part is then the violation. Here, where the first component part is gone by the time you bring the second one out, then they'll never be mitztareif in order to make you chayav. Pamarava, hotzi chatzi grogeret, benicha, person takes out a half grogeret and puts it down. Bazar hotzi chatzi grogeret, vehevira derach aleha, 
and then he takes out another half Grogeret, and then he passes or takes that item above the original one that was there. Chayav. Then you are Chayav, because we're Mitzteref, the two half Grogerets, to get you to the requisite Shior. Vamai, Halona. What does it matter that you're walking by and you pass over the original one that you took out, because it's still in motion. And if you're still in motion, then... There's no Hanachah. There's no Hanachah. You can't be Chayav for carrying on Shabbat. The answer is, V'gon Shevira Tokshloshat. It's a case where you did it within three Tfachim of the ground. There's a Lach of the Moshe Misinai that anything within three Tfachim of an object is considered to be Babud, and it's as if it's in that location already. So here, too, if you bring something below three Tfachim, it's as if it's Batel to the Karka. And since it's Batel to the Karka, it's as if the Hanachah already took place, and the Hanachah took place while the first Gogeret was there, then that makes it that you now have taken out a full grogeret behelem echad, in one forgetting. So here, by moving your hand within three tfachim of the ground, it's as if you've actually laid the object down on the ground, and that's the required hanachad that you need. My says, When you're in three tfachim of the ground for the rabbonon, even though within three tfachim of the ground is considered to be on the ground, still needs to land on some object, doesn't have to be four by four tfachim, a significant object, but it has to come to rest on a certain object before you classify it or deem it to be on the ground because it's within three tfachim. So even according to the Rabbonon, which is a machloket between Rabbi Kiva and the Rabbonon with regards to me, kluta kamishun chadamya, an object that is in motion, do we look at it as a continuum or do you look at it as discrete steps along the way? And then afkamina would be if you classify this as an akira and anacha. When the object passes through a reshut, even though it's in motion, do we say that it's in discrete steps of motion? Therefore, it's akira hanachan, akira hanachan throughout that area, as well as the fact that you're an akira from before and hanachan here, that can make you chayav. That's kluta, kmishun chadamya. That's the view of Rabbi Kiva. Then the view of the Rabbonon is that we don't say kluta, kmishun chadamya. As long as an object is in motion, it's not considered as if it's at rest or it's coming to a hanachan. And what we have here from Rava is that the Rabbonon who believe that an object in motion is not at rest, even they who say that within three tefachim of the ground, it's considered to be on the ground, if it's in motion, that still undermines its ability to come to rest. It's not considered as if it's on the ground. It has to land on something or come to a stationary point at some point in order for it to qualify for or being at rest. So here, if the individual is walking with the item in his hand, even if he lowers his hand below three tefachim, that still doesn't mean that there's an achal over here because it didn't land on something or some object that makes it, that is the hanacha that is then expanded by the fact that it's within three tefachim of the ground. Umar says, Lokasha kan kan Makes a difference whether you're throwing it or whether you are carrying it. If you throw it, then it's never at rest until it comes to a rest which means that as long as it's in motion, it's considered to be a continuum, and it's not as if you were the object throughout the sequence of its path. If that's the case, that all that matters is where you started from and where the object ends up. On the other hand, with regards to ma'vir, when you're actually physically carrying the object from one location to the other location, over there we look at it as if the object comes to rest at each point that's within three tefachim of the ground, and that's because the object is still within the control and in the hand of the individual who is carrying it. And since they then bring it within three tefachim of the ground, between their hand and being in three tefachim of the ground, we consider it as the object came to a rest. That is because the object is considered to be at rest in your hand, and therefore when it reaches within three tefachim of the ground, it's as if there was a hanacha at that point in time. As opposed to when it's in motion, when it's a zrika, there, there's no object that it's on along the continuum, and therefore it's never considered to be at rest, even when it's within three tefachim of the ground. Now, Toswit over here points out two things with regards to this aloha of Robo. The first of which is that you do not need to really go within three tefachim of the original item, but you need to be within three tefachim of the ground. And so then why did Robo specifically mention that you went derech that you went on top of the other object, and that's what makes you chayav? So Toswit says that the Kiddush there is that if you're within three tefachim of that object, that is as if it came to rest on that object, and therefore you'd be chayav. So if you were within three tefachim of the ground, that would also be hotza'ah, and it would be mitzareif to make you chayav. And if you pass over the original object that you carried out, that second object then is mitzvahed with the first object if it's within three tefachim of the first object. In addition, Tosvah points out that the Rabbonon in the Gemara further on with regards to Kuto Kamishahun Chadamya, object in motion is considered to be at rest or discrete points along the continuum. And there the Gemara says that according to the Rabbonon, 
if it's within three tefachim of the ground, they agree that it's kul tefachim ishonchan tamya. And therefore, over here, where Rabbah says, even according to the Rabbanon, if you're within three tefachim of the ground, it doesn't count as hanacha until you actually bring it to rest on something. It's just not true. That's not their opinion. The Bali Tosavo claimed that Rabbah is actually not following the chachamim over there, but rather a different shita of Rabbi Yehuda, who believes that until it comes to rest, it's not considered to be a hanacha. Now Gemara continues with the Brayta. Tan Rebanan, Hutsi chatsi grogeret, v'chazar v'hutsi chatsi grogeret v'lehem echad, chayab. If a person carries out half a grogeret, and in the same forgetting carries out another head, half a grogeret, there meets the rave to make you chayab. V'shtei halamot, on the other hand, if it happened within two forgettings, meaning that you had some sort of yidi'ah in between, they had some sort of awareness that this was a problematic action on Shabbat, then they're not mitzareif and you are patur. If it's one forgetting, and in addition, the destination where you're taking the object was the same, then you're chayav. But if it was in a helem echad, but you ended up as rishuyot, there you are patur. You need to end up in the same destination location in order for the two actions to be mitzareif. Otherwise, we consider them to be separate or independent actions. They're not mitzareif to make you chayab. Now, over here, the Ba'i Tosafot raised a Gemara that's later on in the Daf Kuf Dalet with regards to Ktiva. Over there, the Gemara says, if you write one letter in a particular city, then you go to another city and write a letter, we still say your chayav v'shteotiot, even though the two letters are nowhere near each other, because they are what's called mechusar kreva. If you brought them together, they could be read together. And since all that's separating between them is distance, that's not enough to disqualify it from being considered as if you wrote shte otiot. The truth is, if you wrote two otiot on two different pages separately and they cannot be brought together, then you would not be chayab. But in this instance where all they're missing is the, the distance between them, then they can be mitzareh. And so, Balei Tosafot want to know, then why over here don't we say the same thing? Even if you take out a half grogeret to one particular Rishut Rabim, and another half grogeret to another Rishut Rabim, why can't you be mitzareh them? They're just mechusar kreva. The Reinu Tam claims over here that the Girsa and the Gemara is not like what we have, but rather like that which the Rabbeinu Hanano has. And the Rabbeinu Hanano's Girsa was not that the Hanacha has to be in the same destination or same location, but rather the Akira has to come from the same location. And in Okanami, if you took it out of a single Rishut HaYachid and placed it down in two different Rishuyot Arabim, they would be Mitzareif, because all they are missing is Mechusar Kreva. You just brought them together, they would have been in the same location. And therefore, according to the Rabbeinu Tam, the Gemara should read, like the Rabbeinu Hananel, that you have to have a shared Akira, meaning that they have to originate from the same location, but now that they have to end up in the same location, as opposed to the Girsa that we have in our Gemara. Then the Ri says that he thinks the Girsa in our Gemara is correct, and he distinguishes between the case of the writing. All you're missing there is Mechusar Kreva, is not considered to be Mechusar Masedami. Aval Hotza'ah, when it comes to carrying something out, Lohavia Adamaiti Tavayadu Shutechad not classified as carrying until you come to a single location. Therefore, he says there's a difference between writing two letters when they're far apart. We don't consider them to be as if they're separate entities versus when you're carrying out, you have to come to the same location. If you're not in the same location, that is considered to be a failure in the malacha, and it's as if you didn't do the malacha. Since you can bring the two resultant actions together by ktivah, that's Nemechusar Kreva, it's not Mechusar Maseh, and therefore it's considered to be a single Malacha. Over here, by the Hotza'ah, if they're in different locations, then there's a failure of the Malacha being able to be joined together, the actions being joined together, because the resultant objective of placing them down, which is the Hanacha, in different locations. And therefore you're not bringing together a single object to a single location, because they're actually now found in two different locations. And bringing them together is not going to do anything. It's not going to change the fact that you carry to one location and carry to the other location. Resultant Hanacha brings it to a destination. And those destinations now are separate and therefore they can't be mitzareif. As opposed to the writing where the objective or the result of the malacha is an, a letter that is written. Those two letters can be brought together and be read together. And therefore there is a difference between them. Tosafot and Menachot, Tafnun Zayin also discusses this issue with regards to bishul and afiyah, which is that if you cook something or two halves of an object, what happens if you cook one object in this location and another object in another location, but each one of them was only a chatzi shiur, it didn't meet the requisite shiur, can you bring them together, can you be mitzareif them? And over there, Tosavot brings two possibilities as to why 
the case of Bishol might be distinct or different than the case of Tiva, as well as possibly here the case of Hotza'ah. And the one is that when it comes to Tiva, you could write one letter here and one letter there, and then later on bring them together, and that's not something that's unusual or something that is out of the ordinary. Whereas when it comes to Bishol, he calls it Ein Derech Bishol Bekach. You don't cook half of something somewhere and then half the object in another place and then bring them together afterwards. You generally cook them in one place. So it's a Chisaron in the Malach itself because it's not called Derech Bishol in that way. And since it's an unusual or extraordinary way to cook the item, they will not be Mitzterev. The other possibility that Tosfot raises is that if you cook half an item in one place and half an item in another place, in order to bring them together, you have to detach that half item from the other object that was not cooked. And therefore, you're not just mechusar kreva of bringing them together. You're also mechusar what's called chaticha, cutting it, and then kreva, and then bringing them together. And the Gemara in many places says that if you're missing an action or an activity, we don't deem it as if it's done already. And therefore, since the object requires also a chaticha, you can't say that just the lack of them being together is enough to bring them together. So those two distinctions of Tosafot really open up different possibilities, which is that in the first explanation, where he says that by bishol and dirch bishol bakach, it means that you have to look at every malacha and see whether this is a normal way to perform the malacha, or this is a normal outcome of the malacha, and then that would determine as to whether it's considered to be a single action, even when it's done in two discrete parts in two discrete locations, meaning mechusar kreva, lavka mechusar masedamya. Whereas according to the second answer, it is true that all malachot have this concept embedded in them. It's just a question of whether there's another action that needs to be taken besides bringing them together that would allow them to be mitzdareh. And that also might be the nafkamina between the re and the rabbeinu tam over here as to whether you can say that there is mechusar kreva with regards to hotzah. If you say that you look at each malacha independently, and you have to say, is this the normal way to perform the malacha? Just like it's ein derech bishul bekach, you could also say ein derech hotzah And therefore, it wouldn't be mitzdareh. On the other hand, if you say that it's just because there's a technical problem by the bishul, that you need to cut it first before you can do the kreva. But absent that, the kreva would have been sufficient grounds to bring them together. Maybe over here too, by hotzah, you could be mitzdareh, the two items because they're mechusar kreva, but they're not missing any other action to bring them together, and maybe you could be mitzreif them together. Or you could argue that fundamentally hotza'ah is different, because the purpose of the melacha is to bring an object to a certain location, and if it doesn't reach that location together, then you haven't accomplished the hotza'ah with a single shiur, and therefore then you have a chatzi melacha and a chatzi melacha, and they can't be mitzreif to bring you to a single melacha, rather than you have an action of carrying, an action of carrying that then can be brought together to create a single malacha. Now that statement of Rabbi Yossi is now qualified by the Amoraim, the first of which is benehem. The only time that they are considered to be in separate or discrete locations, according to the way that the Balei Tosafot and the Gerson Agamar reads, the destinations are separated, according to the Rabbeinu Tam or the Rabbeinu Hananel, where it means that the locations from which you started are considered to be separate, is only when you have a reshut de'oraita that sits in between them. So if you have a reshut de'achid that sits between the two reshuyot, rabim, that you carry to, then that would not be able to be mitzdareif. There's a picture in Rashi you can see there. He carried out from a house on two sides of the reshut rabim. If there's a reshut de'achid that sits between those two reshuyot rabim, then that would separate those areas out. But if all that separates between them is a Rishut the Rabbanan, like a Carmelite or a Pisla, those areas would not separate between the two Rishut the Rabbim, because as far as the Torah is concerned, the two Rishut the Rabbim are not separated by any separate Rishut or any other area, but that would make them distinct locations. Rabbi Yamar, Rabbi's Talmud, Abaye says, Afilu Carmelite. Even if it's a Carmelite that separates between them, that's enough to create two distinct locations. But if it is a log of wood that lays across the entire span of Rishut Rabim, that would not be a separating item. Even a pisla, a log that lays across the entire Rishut Rabim, that would be a factor that would separate between the two Rishut Rabim, and you would not be mitzareif the two hotzot that you did. When it comes to Rishut Shabbat, the same way that we have distinct areas when it comes to Gitin, that has application by Shabbat as well as being distinct locations. What the Gemara is referencing to here is that an individual has to deliver a get, a bill of divorce to his wife, in a location within her control, or that's considered to be her yad. 
considered to be an extension of her. So if you deliver the get to her, then obviously she has received the get and the divorce is completed. If you put it into a chatzera mishtamerit, you put it into a courtyard that she owns, that is guarded, meaning that the item is secure in there, there too it's an extension of the woman and it would consider as if you delivered the get to her. But if she has neither of those, then the way that you could create a scenario where she can receive the get is if you give her space in your chatzer. You lent her. You rent her space in your chatzer, and then you deliver it to that location. It's as if she then has received the get at that location. Now, the Gemara there says, if the individual gave her rights to her his chatzer, and then he throws the get into that chatzer for her to receive it, and instead of landing in the chatzer, it lands on this log of wood. That is, across the chatzer, we say that the get is not effective. And that is because we believe that when you lend something to someone, you grant them rights of usage. In order for something to be true, you give them rights of usage for a single location, not for multiple locations. And the piss law, this log of wood that lays across there, is considered to be a separate or independent location with regards to Gitin. And that's what Rav is suggesting over here too. With regards to the Rishut Rabim, when this wood lays across the Rishut Rabim, even though it's in the middle of the Rishut Rabim and it's not a Rishut Bifneatzma, nevertheless it is considered to be a hefsake or a separation between the two Rishuyot, and therefore if you take a Hotza'ah to one side, and Hotza'ah to the other side of the Rabim, on either side of this log that crosses the span of Rishut Rabim, they'd be considered to be separate locations. The Baal Yatosafot point out that the log here has to be something that's a size where it is either 4 by 4 Amot, but it's not 10 Amot high, or it's 10 Amot high, but it's not 4 by 4 And the reverse suggests over here that if it is 4 by 4 Amot, and not 10 Amot high, it has to be a location where people are mikatfim. It has to be a location upon which people shift their load in Rishut Rabim so that it is still a part of the Rishut Rabim. Because if you don't say that, then it would already be a Carmelite, and then even Abayi would agree that it's a separation. And therefore you have to have it be a location that's considered or classified as Rishut Rabim, yet it still is Mafsik. And the only way you can do that is if this location is somewhere where the people of the Rishut Rabim utilize it, in such a way that it has a din like a Rishut Rabim. On the other hand, the Reef says that even if it is a Carmelite, even if it's 4 by 4 and it's not 10th Fakhim high, in Rishut Rabim, where it is classified as a Carmelite, even there you could still see a distinction between the position of Rova and Abaye, and that is that Rabaya believes that only a Carmelite that is static or stationary is something that can separate between Rishiyot. But you have a Carmelite that is Mitaltelet, that can be carried away or moved away, that's not considered to be a Carmelite that separates. And Rova would disagree and say that even that type of Carmelite would separate. So even if you think it is a Carmelite and not something a part of the Rishut Rabim, you could find a distinction between the view of Abaye's Carmelite and the view of Rova's Carmelite over here. Now the Gemara continues with the Mishnah. The stibium, which is an eye coloring or a way to paint the eye, is enough to paint one eye. And the Gemara says, Why is it taking out enough for one eye? considered to be caring or significant, people don't color or paint one of their eyes. When they put on makeup, they put on makeup on both eyes. Women who are very careful about their modesty, they used to go out with their faces covered, and they would only expose one eye in order to be able to see, but they covered the remaining eyes so that they would be super modest. So there are individuals or there are women that do only expose one eye. And when they expose one eye, then they only need to color one eye. And so there is such a concept within the use of kol. Meitave, is that really true? Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer, kol. If you take out this stibium, if it's for medicinal purposes, then you only need enough to paint one eye. So if it's medicinal, or it's using it as a salve here, then one eye would be possibility that someone would use it that way, and therefore it's considered to be significant. In the kashet, if it is for decorative purposes, it's for makeup purposes, then bebete naim, you need to have it on both eyes, because that's the way that people utilize it. Now this is Rabbi Shimon Lazar we've seen before, where his position is, and this is the way that Rashi explained it along, and Tosafot in many places agreed with Rashi, that Rabbi Shem Al-Azhar means that you grant significance to an item, then not only for you is it considered to be caring, but for other people, third parties, it's also considered to be caring. So if you designate this for refuah or for medicinal purposes, even if someone else doesn't need it for medicinal purposes, if they carry that item out, they're going to be chayav as well. That's the way that the Bali Tosafot and Rashi learn. Whereas over here, the Bali Tosafot bring a position of the ri, the nira the ri, de'im the refuah, shoto kuchol ra'uy the refuah. 
that it has to be objectively that it is used or utilized for rifuah. He disagrees that it's a situation in which one person decided that they wanted to use it for rufuah and that it has influence on other people. But rather, objectively, it has to be that this type of kol is the type that's used for medicinal purposes. Then she wrote, Even if you did not put it away for that purpose, since it can be used for that purpose, that's enough to make it that that is the threshold shiur. Inami, the makom. Or in that place, they use the kol for medicinal purposes. And therefore, that's the threshold shiur for these items. So the reed thinks that the statement of Shimon Lazar here is not about people that are being matzniah for those purposes. Rather, objectively, that's what they use it for. The problem now is that why didn't Rabbi Shimon Lazar at least entertain what Rav Huna said? If there are women that color their eye or single eye, then when you carry out that threshold shiur, it should be enough. Why is it only by rifuah that we say that it's with one eye? But yet, when it says makeup, it's two eyes. So, Targamai Hillel, braid the Rav Shmuel bar Nachmani. So, Hillel, Rav Shmuel bar Nachmani, answers on behalf of Rav Huna, explaining this view of Rav Shimon Lazar, Ketanya hahi bi-ironiot. That this Braita is speaking about women. Now, the term ironiot comes from the word ear, which sound like the city women. So, that would be people who are in large areas or metropolitan areas. But then that would seem to be the opposite of what we're looking for. In those areas where there are lots of people, the women are more likely to be tsanua because of the problems of not being tsanua. Rashi over here translates ironiot as being benot kfarim. Women in the villages. They don't have to be so modest. These are places that are more serious, more austere type of lifestyle. And therefore, they don't have to be as tsanua because there's less to worry about. There's less distraction. There's less frivolity. So therefore, they could walk around with uncovering both eyes. The Mesorah Dashas, he quotes from Rashi in other places, that translates Inroniot as a krach katan, a small city. That maybe makes more sense, given the word ear over here, that the large cities, women need to be tsanua like that. But in the smaller cities, where there's less activity and less frivolity, then you wouldn't have to walk out with the one eye. And that's what the Bright does speak about. In those situations, then only if it's for rifuah is one eye sufficient to meet the threshold shiur. But otherwise, for makeup, you need it in both eyes. In locations where they do color just one eye because the women walk around in that way, in Okanami, then even just for makeup purposes, a threshold shiur would also be enough to color one eye. Now, over here, the Gemara is going to continue discussing the Mishnah. As you can see, parts of it are in parentheses. That's because it's somewhat out of order compared to what we have in our Mishnah. The Bach and Od Gimel over here gives the order of the Gemara based on the Mishnah. So we'll generally follow what's in the Gemara over here skipping the parentheses, but following the order seemingly that the Mishnah has. And that is, Devek, we saw after that, glue. With regards to glue, litain bitrosh ashafshah, to put it on top of the board. Tano, we have a brighter that explains that more clearly. Kitain litain bitrosh shafshaf, shbarosh kanet. As we mentioned in the Mishnah, it is a board that has glue on it that's on top of a large pole, shaltzaydin, of hunters or trappers. They're trying to capture a bird, and they put a large amount of glue on top of this board, but they need to hold it away from themselves so the birds are attracted or seduced by the food on that platform to come and eat and then get stuck to the glue. So that is, they put it up on a large pole or a large stick to hold it away from themselves. Zefet vigafrit. When it comes to pitch and tar, kedei lasot nekev, we said in the Mishnah that it's allowed to make a hole. Tana kedei lasot nekev katan. So the Brayta tells us that it's enough to make a small hole, because in the Mishnah all it said was kedei lasot nekev, to make a hole. And over here in the Brayta it qualifies for us that it's a nekev katan, it's a small hole. And as we discussed in the Mishnah, it was a utensil, a dropper that was made to hold the mercury in it, and have small opening that you could dispense the mercury from this item. So you use the, the gafrit and the zephyr to seal it up and leave a small opening. So then we go back to the parentheses that we skipped before, which is shava. When it comes to wax, that's what it says in the Mishnah, to cover over or seal a small hole. Tana in the bright it says, it's used for a small hole in a utensil that's holding wine. And as Rashi explains over here, wine is less viscous. You have other liquids like honey and oil, which are more viscous. Therefore, from a small hole, they wouldn't leak out. Wine, which is less viscous, is more liquidy. Therefore, it would pour out even of a small hole. So we're talking about sealing up a hole from wine that you would put the shava in because even a smaller hole there would require a plug. And that's what we're speaking about. Then the Mishnah continues with harasit, that it is some form of clay, which Rashi says was produced by crushing bricks. And that was to make an opening for the bellow 
for the smelter's pots for the gold. Based on that, it would turn out in the Mishnah that Rabbi Huda's shiur is of a larger size. That is, in the Mishnah, we had an argument as to what you use this clay for. Chachamim, or the Tanakhama, says it's to make a hole or an opening into the cauldron of the gold smelters. The gold smelters need to get their pots to extremely high heats in order to smelt the gold and purify the gold. And so therefore they had to create these small openings to put the bellows in to increase the intensity of the heat. And that's a small opening. It's a small amount of harasit. Rabbi Huda says you need to have it to make a tripod or some sort of stand upon which they put the pots on the fire. Basically the grates that you put above the stovetop or a tripod to hold up the item, and that's a more significant size. And the Mara says, I kaimalan the shiur, the Rabbanon ofish. We have in Misora that the Rabbanon shiurim are always bigger than those of Rabbi Yehuda in the Mishnah. That's not, because we had earlier on in the Mishnah, when it comes to a reed, Rabbi Yehuda Markadeli told him, Menumi datmin al-dekatan. When it came to a reed, we had different opinions as to what you use it for. The first opinion was that you use it for a hanging extension on the sieve or the sift. And then we had the opinion of Rabbi Huda that was Kedeli told me menu midat minalikatan. You use it for a measurement to tell the size of a child's foot in order to give it to the shoemaker. And there it was clear that Rabbi Huda's shiur is smaller. And the Gemara says or assumes here that then Rabbi Huda is consistent throughout the Mishnah that whenever he gives an alternate opinion, his shiur is always smaller. Now that's not necessarily a logical argument or not necessarily reasonable to assume that that's the case. Nevertheless, the Ritvo explains over here that the reason we do say that is because the Gemara's assumption is here that the thing that is of a higher usage or utility will have a larger size to it, and the item that is of a lesser utility or lesser usage will have a smaller size to it. And therefore, the Chachamim Rabbi Huda need to be consistent in their opinion as to what is the determining factor with regards to these matters. And that is that the Chachamim always focus on what is the highest utility or the most common utility of the item. And even though that's a larger size shiur, and therefore they're always going to have the larger shiur because that's associated with more common usage. As Abiyuda entertains that if it's used even sometimes for a smaller size, that that size is significant. And that's why the Gemara here says that they need to be consistently in those opinions Rabbi will have the smaller size. And over here, it sounds like Rabbi has the larger size. The Gemara deals with that by saying, It's not to make a tripod or a stand above the stove to put the pot on, but rather to fix it, to put a small amount of plaster on a part where it is cracked or it's broken a little bit. To fix it, that's the amount, and that amount would be smaller than that which is proposed by the Rabbanon for the smelter's pot. Tosua does point out before that we say that people, they would not make cement or plaster until it was a larger size. It wasn't sufficient for the opening into the smelter's pot to make such an amount. So then why by harasit is that the threshold shiur, according to the Chachamim? So Tosua gives two answers to that. The first of which is that harasit chashib tvemitit. The harasit is considered to be more significant or expensive than teeth, and people would make smaller sizes of it. They wouldn't just mix larger quantities of it, they mix even smaller quantities of it. Or, it's a case where it's already made, and the charasit was made, what do you do with made charasit? What is the threshold shiur? And then that would be then akin to what we said by seed, that once the seed is made, then the threshold amount is making it for the smelter's pot, and that would be similar over here. They take out the gears over here, subim, because that's just a direct quote from the Mishnah, without any additional explanation from the Gemara. So now, Tanarabanan, Someone who carries out hair, it's to use in the mixture of making the cement or the plaster. Teat, the amount of teat that you need to take out is is to make that opening to the, the gold smelter's cauldron. And again, over here, as we noted before, this is when the teat is already made. That's the requisite size that you need. If you're going to make teat, you need a revit worth of shofchim, as we said before, and you make larger quantities of it when you're starting from scratch. But if you already have it made, this would be the amount. And as Bali will point out, according to this girsa of Rashi, and of the Tosefta, there are two separate questions over here. One question is with regards to Seir, and that Seir is well enough to be mixed into a large cement quantity, which is the regular quantity. That regular quantity is when you use a revere of water of shofchim, of wastewater, that's the amount of teeth that you need in order to have the hair mixed in with it to be chayab. So that amount of hair would be sufficient for that, would be the threshold shiur. With regards to teeth itself, that's once already the teeth is mixed, what is the threshold shiur? And that's the pikur shal tzorhei 
But the Bali Tosafot bring that there's another girsa in the Sfarim, which is Seyar, Kedel, Gawel, Botit, Lasot, Pi, Kor, Shal, where connects between the two items. In that instance, then the Seyar would be governed not by the larger amount of tit that you make when you start from scratch, but even by the smaller amount of tit that you use over here. And then the concept, Tosafot said, would be that when you have tit that's already made, and you're going to use it for a smaller item, then you would add hair to it there to reinforce it. And that hair that you add would be the threshold shior, which obviously would be a smaller amount than when you make it from scratch to make a full load of cement. And then the Mishnah ended off with the sid, the, the lime. In the Mishnah, that was Kedela Sud, a small limb on a young child. So Tana, we have a bright Kedela Sud, It's in order to plaster on the smallest finger of the young girls. Now, the Gemara is going to give two reasons for that, one of which we discussed in the Mishnah, which was that it was a depilatory. The other one is that it actually reddens the skin, gives it a reddish complexion and softens the skin. So it's also something that beautifies. So it has both of those purposes. And that is the amount that you would need, even for the smallest finger on a young girl, that would be the amount that you'd be chayav for carrying out. And now, Amr of Yudam Rab, they explain why that is. They reached puberty below Yilushanim, but they were not yet at the age when you would have expected them to be puberty, so they are prematurely reaching puberty. Then, daughters of the poor people, they used to cover them in this lime in order to be a depilatory to take off that hair because they were embarrassed about it because they were too young already to have that hair. But note that Shirim, the more wealthy ones, use Toflototam Besolet. They use fine flour. It would seem that it was softer and it was less painful to do it in this way. But note Menachim, princesses, Toflototam Beshemen Amor. They use Shemen Amor, Shenamar. That's what's said in Megillat Esther with the preparations of the women to meet Achashverosh, that it says they were Shisha Chodoshim Beshemen Amor. They spent six months getting anointed with the Shemen Amor. My Shemen Amor. What is this Shemen Amor that we're talking about? That it is shemen, that is known by this stock. You can see over here on the side that the Oroch says that stock is spiced oil. It is olives have reached only a third of their maturation, which means that they're not fully ripened. They are already producing oil and quasi-edible. When they have reached just that point of one-third, they are more pungent, and they have a certain amount of power to be a depilatory in that state. And that's what we're speaking about here. Tanya Rabbi Hudomer, Anpiknon, which is mentioned in the Gemara Menachot with regards to the shemen that's used in the Mikdash, that that Anpiknon is shemen zayit shlish. So he says that it is the same item, which is this shemen amor, and this Anpiknon are synonymous, based on that explanation of Rabbi Rabbi Abba. And the Lama Sechinoto, so then what do they use it for? Shit, Shemashir at the Seyar, it takes off, it removes the hair, it's a depilatory. Umadeinet abasar, and it softens the skin, and as Rashi notes over here, it gives it a reddish complexion, which was considered to be more beautiful. So it also was not only just a depilatory, but it was a beautifying agent for the skin. Rabibi Aviale Brato, Rabibi had a daughter, Tafla Aver Aver, one by one, each one of her limbs, he did this process to her. He put the lime on and then removed it. And it made her so beautiful with a reddish complexion and soft skin that Shakaba Dea Dalmeo Zuze, that he collected 400 zuz for her dowry as a contribution from the groom's side who wanted to marry her. It fetched, she fetched 400 zuz because she was so beautiful. Abuhao Nochri Bishivute. There was a non-Jew in his neighborhood, Havile Brato, and he had a daughter as well, and he figured, well, I should do what Rabibi did, because then I'll end up collecting much more for my daughter when I go to marry her off. So Tafla Bechad Zimna, instead of doing it one limb at a time, he did her all at once. Umeita, and she died, and that's because if you do it all over the body, it doesn't give opportunity for the body to breathe. And since she was now covered in lime, she passed away. And Omar, he said, Kato Rabibi the Brate, Rabibi killed my daughter. Obviously, Rabibi didn't kill his daughter, but he was imitating Rabibi, but he didn't get the full recipe, right? Because he did it all at once instead of Aver Aver, and therefore his daughter died, and is trying to emulate what Rabibi had done for his daughter. I'm Rav Nachman, Rabibi, Deshati Shikra, Bain Benate Taflo. Rabibi, who is from Bavel, where they drank lots of beer, his daughters need this tipul. They need this both pillatory to take off the hair, and the tipul in order to redden the skin and soften up the skin because, as Rashi notes over here, 
beer causes hair growth and a darkening of the skin. So they who drink beer had this anan in Eretz Yisrael, Galushatin and Sheikh, we don't drink beer, rather, we drink wine. Our daughters don't need this treatment because they naturally don't have as much hair and their complexions are more beautiful. And now the Gemara continues with the alternate opinions about what you do with the Sid. It's enough to make or plaster down like a moose for the side curls. My kilkul or my andipe. Rabbi Yirmi after him says andipe. What's the difference between a kilkul and an andipe? Amarava tzida ubatzida. Tzida means a temple, as you can see in Rashi says temples. Ubatzida is a derivative of the temple. And the way that Rashi explains it is that tzida is like the moose material to plaster down the side curls up to the temple. And then batzida means below the temple they used to put it on in order to remove the thin hair that goes below the area of the temple. Remember, the shira the Rabbi Yehuda nafish. If batzida sounds like it's a derivative of tzida, and it means it sounds like Rabbi Yehuda's shiur is bigger. Again, we established in the end of the previous Samud, the Shira, the Rabbonon, Nofish, that the Rabbonon Shira was bigger. But it says, that's not a problem. Zuta mi the Rabbonon, but Nofish mi the Rabbonon Nechemia. The Rabbi Yehuda's position is smaller than that of the Rabbonon, but it's still bigger than that of Rabbi Nechemia. So he sits in between those two Shiurim, where the Rabbonon think it's for using it as a depilatory or a skin enhancer. Rabbi Yehuda says it's being used for moose to plaster down the side curls up to the temples. And Rabbi Nechemia is saying that it's used as a depilatory for the area below the temples. Meitavei, Amarabi, Nirin Divi Rabbi Yehuda, Bechavot. Rabbi Yehuda's suggestion is what they use the lime for makes sense when you're talking about Chavot. As Rashi says, that's a very liquidy lime. But Divi Rabbi Nechemia and Rabbi Nechemia's usage, or Andipi, makes sense when it's a Beitzat Asid. When it is these balls of lime, meaning that it's less liquidy type of lime. If you believe that it's Sida or Bat Sida, that the explanations of the Machlokit here between Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Nechemia is about above the temples and below the temples, both of them use the more liquidy type of lime. And then why does Rabbi's distinction make any sense? So then we can't say that Andipi is the area below the temples, but rather you have to come up with a different explanation. And that is, Rabbi Yitzchak suggests, I'm married to Rabbi Ami, Andipa, that the Andipa is equivalent or similar to the Andipa, which as Rashi explains over here, is a clay utensil that has two openings on it. It has an opening on the bottom and an opening on the top. And when you want to fill it, you seal the bottom opening, and then you fill it up, and then afterwards you seal the top, and then when you want to drink from it, you open up that bottom tap or bottom area that you have sealed up. Matki Flora of Kahano, Rav Kahano says that doesn't make any sense. Does a person make his money as if it is free or a loss? Because this Andipa was used for storing wine in it. And if you plug the bottom hole with lime, wine eats away at the lime, and it softens it up, and then it'll cause it to leach and leak, and then eventually just open up and you'll lose all your wine. So that doesn't make any sense that that's what the usage of the lime was for. It's dealing with markings. And now we're going to use the explanation of Rashi, and then afterwards we'll explain the alternate. In the Mikdash, they had Kalim with certain measures there, and the measuring cup that was used there was a hin, which is 12 log. But sometimes they needed different sizes. Sometimes they needed 3 log, sometimes they needed 4 log, sometimes they needed 6 log. But if you only have a utensil of 12 log of a hin, then how do you get a vitahin, a shlishitahin, and a chatziahin? The Mishnah there says that shnatot hayo bahin. There were markings along the way, and it was basically a measuring cup that had different levels. There was a marking for a chatziahin, which was adkan the par. That's what's used for the, the nisachim of a par. And so that was halfway up. Adkan the ayol, a third of the way up, which was four log that they needed. That was for an ayol. That's the nisachim for an ayol. Adkan the keves is that a quarter of the way up. They had a marking. That was the three log that was used for the Nitzachim of Akeves. So that's the way Rashi explains it over here, that the Shnotot were markings. And they used Sid, they used lime to make it clear, because lime is white and very discernible. And so when they wanted to see those levels inside of the utensil, they put this lime in there to make the markings for the measuring cup. That's the way Rashi explains it. On the other hand, he says, he quotes from his Rebbeim, and Rashi, in a number of places throughout this Masechla, quotes his Rebbeim, and then disagrees with them with regards to that explanation. And over here, he suggests, explain that the word andipa meant that they covered the entire body of the person with the seed in order to remove the hair and to soften the 
skin and make it a redder complexion. And then the anparot means, why would you do something like that? Because we know that the neighbor of Rabibi killed his daughter in that way. And why would you suggest that that's what you would use the lime for? Why would Renechemia suggest that's what you use the lime for? Elder Shnatot, Shnatot is a parable, just like a Shnatot are marking to indicate smaller amounts. So too, Shnatot over here is a way to say that they did it limb by limb. And Rashi says, Iyav Shor Belashon Zed. This explanation doesn't make any sense. Belon Emashita Shaskin Hazkir Ever Ever Belashon Shnatot. We find nowhere else in Shas that the Gemara calls limb by limb Shnatot. If it wants to say limb by limb, it says limb by limb. And therefore Rashi says he doesn't think that's the right explanation, but rather the explanation that we gave beforehand. my andipa. What is the andipa? Aputa means on the forehead. So the line was used not as a depilatory, but rather to place on the forehead of the woman to give it a reddish complexion and a softer skin. And it was a beautifying mechanism that they used it for. Similar to this story about an individual who's from the Galil. Dikla the Bavel. He came to Bavel. He's coming from Eretzisel to Bavel. Come and give us a drosha and explain to us the meaning of the Maisei Merkava, which is the first parak of Yechezkel. It's the Haftorah for the first day of Shavuot. So he says to them, I'll give you all the explanations of this, same way that Rabbi Nechemia taught all the Tamidei Chachamim. It sounds like he was a member of those that learned. I'll give you that explanation. I'll explain it to you. And then suddenly a wasp came out in a kotel from the wall, and stung him or bit him in his forehead, and he died right away. He caused his own death. He was the cause for this problem, because he was doing something that's inappropriate, as the Gemara in Chagiga says, that you're not allowed to teach people the Maiseh Amerikava, because it's the deepest secrets of the guards to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and it's very easy to misunderstand, and you're going to be taught on a one-on-one basis with an appropriate Talmud, and here he is willing to be Doresh Barabim. And so since he was about to do something inappropriate, they killed him, and that's what the Gemara says, that he got what he deserved. And they brought the story down because he was stung by Ndipe, and Ndipe there means forehead, and that's what the Gemara is saying over here, that possibly the Ndipe of Reb Nechemia means plastering the seed on the forehead of the young lady. Okay, now the next Mishnah says, Adama, earth, but in all likelihood, it seems to mean like reddish earth or clay. How much do you have to carry out? It is for like a seal on the merchandise bags. As Rashi says over here, these were large bags that were used for transporting merchandise on boats. And then he used to seal the bags with this type of clay. Divi Rabbi Yekiva, it doesn't have to be that big. It can even be a seal for letters. When you're trying to send a letter and you want the recipient to know that nobody else opened it or saw it on the way, then you put a seal on it and he breaks the seal to open it up. That's the Chotam Aigarot. That would be a smaller shiur than that of Rabbi Akiva. Zebel v'chol adak. We already quoted this back on Daf Ayin Tet. When it comes to fertilizer or fine sand, Gele Zavel Kelach Shel it's in order to fertilize a single stalk of cabbage. That's Divir Kresha. It's enough to do it for a leek, which would be a smaller shiur. Cholagas, thicker or coarser sand. It's to put what seems to be a handful of lime. We'll have to see in the Gemara what that means. A reed is to make a quill out of it. In their days, they used to write with a reed, not with a quill that comes from a feather. Today, all the sofrim write with a quill that comes from a feather. There are still some Sephardi sofrim that write with a kaneh, where they sharpen the edge of the kaneh, and it has a very hollow area in it, and it's able to then to pull or draw the ink up into that hollow area, and they write with it. The reason that they don't do it anymore is because it does not have as fine a curvature and markings as the quills. The quills are a much finer instrument, and therefore they don't use that as a mechanism for writing anymore, because if we went back to using the kane, we wouldn't be able to do the fine printing and little nuances that we have now in the letters or the structure of the letters, and so therefore there was a shift over time from moving from the kane to a quill, but over here the mission is speaking about the time the Mishnah where they used reeds for writing with, if it was too thick, meaning maybe the hollow area was too big to allow it to draw ink into it, or it was crushed, and therefore it could not hold the ink in it, then it's really like firewood or kindling, then you would have to have enough that you could cook a beitzakala, a light egg, of amongst the eggs, trufa that was scrambled or mixed up, 
Nutunabe Ophis and put it in a frying pan, and the Gemara will discuss that. So now the Gemara says, Ad Malo Kaf Seed, up to a full handful of seed. That's what you use the Cholagas for. Tano, what does that mean? Doesn't mean into the hand or the palm of those that are plastering, but rather it means to put it onto the cuff. The tool of the Sayyidina, if you look in Rashi, says that's a trowel. It's to put enough seed on the trowel for the plasterers. That's the amount you would take out, because that's considered to be significant. Montana de Cholmalile the seed. Who is the Tana that believes that adding sand to the lime is beneficial? Ravchista Rabiuda, it has to be Rabiuda. The Tanya, we have a Brighta and Bobabacha when it's speaking about things that they do. Zecha the Churban. One of them is that you're not allowed to plaster your house white, because that beautifies the house, and in the shadow of the Churban, that is inappropriate, and that is the practice today to leave out a certain space when you whiten the house or whitewash the house. They leave out a square to be zecher the korban. So there, you lo you saw the damet beito besid. A person can't lime or plaster his house with lime to make it all white. Elaim kenirev boteven ochol unless you mix into it straw or sand, which then causes it to have a darker complexion and not be as white. So then, that's the Chachamim solution. If you add those items, then you can plaster your house. If you use straw, it's mutar. Because if you use chol, it's not good. Because it actually strengthens the bonding quality of the lime. Therefore, you see that sand is beneficial for lime, according to Rabbi Yehuda, because it strengthens the binding properties of the lime. Even according to the Rabbonon, you could say that, The thing that is detrimental is also the thing that benefits it. So the easiest way to read this is to say, yes, the sand causes it to be less white, but on the other hand, it still has stronger binding qualities. So the Rabbonon, when they're speaking about the issue of Chorban the whiteness is the issue. Therefore, the sand is successful at lowering the, the white coloration, but it also does have a positive benefit, but is that it's a better binder. And that's the way the Rabotai of Rashi explained this Gemara. Now then Rashi dismisses that explanation because he says that's not the way to explain kikulo zehu tikuno. Because kikulo zehu tikuno means the same item that is causing the detriment in it itself causes the tikun. And so over here, you're right. The sand causes the discoloration, but it also causes the binding so the sand is doing both of them, but that one item is ruined, but a different item is benefited. So it's the color that's ruined, but the strength of the binding qualities is improved. And that's not called kikulo zehu tikuno. Rather, Rashi says that the discoloration is what you're trying to do here. That the kikulo, putting the sand in that discolors it, is what you're trying to get to. And therefore becomes a benefit to you because now you can use this lime to plaster your house. And that's what it means, kikulo zehu tikuno. The discoloration, which is problematic, that's the kilkul. Nevertheless, in this case, it's a positive thing, because then now you can use this lime to plaster your house. And that's the way that Rashi explains kukulo zehu tikuno, that even according to the Rabbanan, adding the sand is beneficial in certain instances. Kaneh, kaneh lasot kumus, a reed in order to make a kumus, tana kumus ha How big is a reed that can be used for writing? So the Gemara says it has a reed that's the size that reaches up to your fingers because you have to use it or be able to hold it. How far up does it have to go? Does it have to go up to the point where it reaches your knuckles? It has to be that long in order for you to use it for writing, meaning the place where the fingers join to the hand, or does it mean the joint in the middle of the fingers? And the Gemara leaves that as a take you, an unresolved issue it does not know. If it was too thick or was unusable for a writing instrument, then we use it for firewood or kindling. Tano, we have a bright that explains what's going over here. Trufa, when we said that it was mixed or scrambled, it means beshem with oil. Unutuna beilfis, then put it in a frying pan, because that's the fastest way that you could cook an egg. So what we're looking for here is the most expedient way to cook an egg, and that would be the amount of wood that you would need to fire up, fire up a fire that would cook an egg in that way. We're looking for the smallest threshold, because that would be the amount you'd be chayav for. So he says to his son, did you hear what this small egg or this light egg is? It is the egg of a turtle dove. My daima. What's the reason that the Mishnah mentions the turtle dove's egg? Because it's very small. So that's why it's a chumra. His father says back to him, Then why if you're going to talk about the small egg, why don't you speak about a hummingbird's egg, which is even smaller? Ishtik, he didn't have an answer. Amalei, mida shmielach, baha. So his son says to him, did you hear anything about this? Amalei, achi, amai, rav sheshet. 
This is the way Rav Sheja explains it. Beitzat Tarnagolet. It is a chicken's egg. So my karelay beitza kalas. And then why is it called a light egg? It's not the smallest egg. It's not the lightest egg. Because shiwaru chachamim in the beitza kalal vashel yotermi beitza tarnagolet. Is the fastest cooking egg is a chicken's egg. So therefore all the items that are mentioned in the Mishnah are things that expedite the cooking. And that is, first of all, it has to be a chicken's egg, which cooks quickly. It has to be an egg that's scrambled and mixed with oil, which accelerates the cooking. And it has to be done in a frying pan, which is the fastest way to cook the egg. So if you have all of those combined together, the amount of wood that you would need in order to have a fire to cook in that manner, that's the amount of wood that if you carried out would be significant if you're not using these reeds for writing instruments. So it's a small amount of wood that would create that fire that could cook in that way. How come all other shirim in Shabbat, when it comes to ochlim, is measured by rogeret, by a dry fig? And over here, all of a sudden, you're using an egg. It means that you don't have to cook the whole egg. It means that you have to cook a dried fig's worth of a chicken's egg that's scrambled with oil that is in a frying pan. That's the amount of wood that you need. So gogeret is still the threshold amount of food that you're cooking, but it's coming from an egg of a chicken, and that's the explanation of the Mishnah over here. Let's stop here at the end of Daf Pei, and we'll start with the Mishnah on Pei Alev tomorrow.